When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could with things I picked up along the way. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. Today we're looking at the story of David, Bathsheba, Uriah, God, lots of characters. Um, A story that's very poignant for me um, as someone who has gone away to war and come back to a different reality. Um, And if that's happened to you or someone you know, this story uh, might resonate with you as well. I did an earlier podcast on this story, which is like several hours long. If you want to listen to it, it's way down at the very bottom of the podcasting (laughs) record uh, that I have here on Dear Padre. You can like hear more about my story in that. But um, here we go. The lectionary skips from this great act of kindness to one of David's uh, enemies, or at least potential enemies, Mephibosheth, uh, to the story of David, Bathsheba, and also Uriah, and also this child that is born from their union, and also God is in this story. At the very end, God shows up. Just in case any of us thought that David was doing the right thing here, or was the good guy in the story. The narrator reminds us uh, the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Uh, Make no mistake when you're reading this story. But the story is the story of David. It is the story that we know of his life. We know about David and Goliath. If you interviewed the man on the street, they'd know David and Goliath, and they'd probably know this story maybe from the Richard Gere movie, maybe from just hearing about it. Hard to say. And the narrator is slowly unfolding it for us, showing us the nuances that go into this story that make it even more alarming and more tragic. In the spring of the year, when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. That line itself is the line that sets up the story. When the kings go out to battle, like they always do, and always have done, and always will do, David didn't go. Why didn't he go? Doesn't tell us. He's napping on the couch when he wakes up, and he goes to his roof, and he sees a woman bathing. Um, It says the woman was very beautiful, similar to, uh, rhetorically similar to how Samuel saw David when he is brought before him and presented as very beautiful, um, using that word to describe David. Now this word is used to describe this woman that he sees. David has his messengers inquire about the woman, which meant they had to like go down there to her house and figure out who she was, or somebody had to talk to somebody and And now there's more people that know about this than just David in his own head. Um, And the narrator, again, reminds us that David should have known better. The messengers come and say, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. She's somebody's daughter, David. The wife of Uriah the Hittite, 
She's a daughter. She's a wife. Don't do this. But he is the king, and they really can't say no without risking their life. And so his accomplices go along with it. She's brought to him, and here the story uh, takes the twist, I think, that um, all Bible stories do, that we read them in light of recent events. Uh, when many people read the story in my youth and presented it to me and she talked about it and preached about it and taught, taught on it, the story was sort of told from David's perspective um, for, towards another man like me, a young man, saying, don't do this stuff. Don't go up on your roof. Don't look at women taking baths. Uh, those sorts of things from that perspective. Because you'll end up with a, a woman that traps you in immorality. And then you'll be an adulterer. Um, and from that perspective, Bathsheba is the dangerous woman, the temptress, as all women are. Um, very good or very evil, never anything in between. And similar to Adam who is lonely, he sees all the animals with each other, male and female, and says, hey, I'm lonely. God, the animals have friends and companions. Can you make me one? And God makes him one woman out of his rib, out of his side. He gives birth to her in the very literal sense. And, and then the minute they eat the fruit, that woman you gave me, that woman you gave me, he says. She is not any longer bone of his bone or flesh of his flesh. She is the one who tricked him, and it's her fault. Um, and that's, this is how the story has been told throughout my lifetime, to me, and to many others as well. And yet, the more you look at the story, you can see that this story is really about Bathsheba and her tragedy and her pain and her suffering that she is sexually assaulted, that she really has no way of saying no to the king, to David. What she can say, though, is the one line that she does say in the story. Um, she has one line in it. She is silent, the rest of it. And the, the, the statement she makes is a message she sends to David saying, I am pregnant. She doesn't accuse him of rape or sexual assault. She doesn't um, make entreaties to him of anything. She just tells him what has happened. And in this very simple, almost bland statement of her reality now is a message more powerful than any other message that she could have given. It is a statement that what you have done in your power, because you could, has now affected not just me, but affected everyone else involved in the story. Um, pregnancy is something that cannot be concealed for very long, and David knows this. And so now his greed and his lust and his uh, abuse of power has suddenly taken on a dimension that he did not expect. And so... What he does is he tries to cover it up, and most of the chapter is dedicated to how he tried to do that, recalling Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite is probably Jewish. He is probably um, somehow an ancestor of his has been grafted into the community. This points to the fact that um, immigration 
um, in the time of the Bible was something that happened a lot. People did come and go and move from place to place and join the people of God in the land of Israel. And Uriah is the Hittite. Now, the Hittite empire is long gone at this point. It's not around anymore. It was so long gone that many people suspected that um, the Hittite empire was a figment of the Bible's imagination, that they just kind of made it up, that there were these Hittites. Um, since then, the last hundred years, people have, uh, archaeologists have found the Hittite empire. It's, it was a huge empire that spanned uh, much of the Mediterranean and Anatolian or Turkey world, that's now Turkey, um, and the city of Troy, which is made famous in the Iliad. You might have seen the Brad Pitt movie, um, Troy. The city of Troy is a Hittite city um, there that the Greeks attack, the European Greeks attack and are beaten by the, by the uh, Helen of Troy, the face that launched a thousand ships as a Hittite princess. Um, and so uh, Uriah the Hittite is a stranger by his very name, even though he's probably Jewish like everybody else there. Um, he is, this, has this name that sets him apart. So David has even more obligation to him as a stranger than he would even someone of his own tribe. Um, and moreover, he has an obligation to him as one of his soldiers and even generals. He's a, he's a um, person of, of influence and power. And yet, um, so David tries to manipulate, very much like um, Jacob does when he's trying to trick his father-in-law and other people, um, this deception comes in. He gets him drunk. Um, and it works. You can get somebody drunk pretty easily, especially a soldier who's been fighting out in the field. Um, and yet Uriah is a soldier. He's a person of principle. He knows that um, the men in the field, his soldiers, are out there sleeping out in the field. And so he's not going to go sleep with his wife, even though the king orders him to. The word comes back that everybody sees Uriah sleeping on his doorstep. Everybody knows this. So David realizes in a panic that what he has done cannot be easily covered up. He tries again, and it doesn't work again. And so Uriah has written his own death sentence at this point. He, is, um, he carries the letter of his own doom back to his commander very similar to the Shakespearean story of Hamlet, where they carry the letter, I forget the guy's names, that carry their own letter. When you open the letter, execute these two guys. Um, is it Mercutio? And I, Anyway, I'm probably mixing up Romeo and Juliet with Hamlet. Rosencrantz and... Rosencrantz and Gilderstein, yes. That's right. Um, this, this is not... Shakespeare didn't invent that part of the story. Uh, he, he then goes, and in, in this story, um, David gives his advice to the commander when he finds out that Uriah has been killed in the battle. Um, he's left exposed against a wall, and the rest of his troops pull back, and he's left there, abandoned by his own people. Just as the king has abandoned him, so his own soldiers abandoned him. And there must have been a moment of realization for Uriah. I wonder if there was where he realized that something else was at work, where he put the pieces together of the king's strange behavior, of getting him drunk, trying to get him to sleep with his wife, and then doing it again unsuccessfully. And then the strange behavior of his own soldiers that run away from him and abandon him on the battlefield. Um, there may have been a moment where he realized 
the betrayal, the level of betrayal that he was experiencing, and the deadly level. And of course, David, the armchair general at this point, um, he did not go out to the battle, but he has plenty of advice on how to run campaigns. He gives this long story about Abimelech, who was killed by a millstone by a woman. You can even see David blaming Bathsheba, that Uriah was killed by a woman in this part of the story, that it was his own fault or Bathsheba's fault that he died. David has not claimed any responsibility for Uriah's death. He even says the sword devours one and then another. Um, Like there's a bullet with your name on it, soldiers often say. So you don't have to worry about dying in battle because if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. The word that he, the phrase, the sword devours one against the other is a play on words. In Hebrew, the sword doesn't have an edge. A sword has a lip, the lip of the sword. So the sword devours like a mouth, uh, one and then another. And so that's just the way war is. People die. Uriah died. In fact, it's almost like Uriah got killed by a woman, his own wife. This is David's interpretation of it. He has pushed the blame on everybody but himself, when in fact he is the only one that can be blamed in this story for anything. His power has corrupted him. His ability to get away with whatever he wants, or at least thinking he can get away with whatever he wants to do, has corrupted him so much. We can see him going from the tender shepherd of Israel, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, He leadeth me besides the still waters. He restoreth my soul. And I want you to kill Uriah in the battle. This is the king. This is our psalmist. This is the ancestor of Jesus. But not only is David the ancestor of Jesus, but so is Bathsheba. And she bears a son. This is not the ancestor of Jesus, the son. The son will suffer the judgment of his father's sin um, in in the killing of his own son. Um, this is the, the judgment has not happened yet. All it says is the Lord was displeased with what David did. We see a story of really awful human tragedy in this, the pain and suffering caused by this bored king who um, uses his power for only his own advantage. And we can see all sorts of life lessons in this. But the fact that the Lord saw this, to me, is one of the most significant parts of the story. This was not just an action done that the Lord ignored. This was something Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, noticed and saw and is going to fix. Not in our timeline, but in David's timeline, in God's timeline. Things will be, justice will be done. And so when all the um, when we read this story in light of the Me Too movement and in light of the constant revelations of predatory behavior on the part of powerful people in our world, um, we lament with Bathsheba, thinking of all the pain that she suffered in this story, the pain that the other people that, had to, that were accomplices in this story, um, also under the subject of the king, the pain of Uriah, in the story, the pain of all these people, but especially Bathsheba. I think um, in the recent years, we've become more aware of this kind of pain and suffering. And these stories are just as important as the story of David and all his stuff. 
This is the story of what it means to be human on this earth. And so um, we pray today for all the Bathshebas in life who have been um, attacked by powerful men, powerful people, and have been abused and have been mistreated. And the consequences of their action, of these, these abuses and sufferings, have, been ripple, have had ripple effects to many, many, many other people. And so we know God sees, God notices, and God cares. And tomorrow we'll find out the way that God fixes this, the way justice is brought to this king who thinks he can get away with anything. Amen. O God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your Spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.